Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about value, which only exists in your customer's mind. Uh, today, I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, I, I'm excited to have a great conversation with you. Mark is the founder of Third Way Incorporated, which is a leadership and culture consulting company. Mark has background as uh, HR professional in major organizations. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about your journey that brought you to uh, where you are now with Third Way. 30 plus year corporate guy, Mark. I grew up in the HR function um, that evolved a lot over the years, like, like many other things have. And most recently, I was a senior VP of HR for a, a billion dollar global company, you know, with a lot of complexity to it. So I like to say I've seen it all. I don't think anybody's seen it all, but I've seen a lot. <laughs> and so... Um, so at the end of that 10-year run with that company, I went out on my own, which is two and a half years ago, really doing the HR stuff that I really like to do, Mark, you know, executive coaching. I did a lot of coaching inside the organization. Now I do it with client companies. Leadership development, I get a big kick out of because it is so critical to any company's success. And then I do culture analysis with companies to really just evaluate the health of their culture and and what improvements need to be made. So those are the fun parts of HR that I've carried over into my practice. Yeah, I, I say the same thing, you know, in my consulting, I'd say I get to do all the fun part of being a sales leader without all the the uh, interpersonal HR right. uh, stuff. Right. So in my book, I talk about a value-focused culture. And that is where everybody in the company has a straight line of sight to the customer, not only to the customer, but to the perceived outcomes, the value our customers have. And a lot of companies don't have that. They, they have internal customers and silos. And I reject that in my uh, premise of the value culture. And before you and I talked, we talked about how that, you know, I talk about where to lead and you talk about how to lead. And I think it bleeds together a little bit more than that. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you can't do one without the other, <clears throat> the where and the how. Yeah. On your website, you talk about when you talk about culture and you have a, an assessment where you work with clients and yep. to, develop the, to assess the health of their culture, you have four dimensions that you talked about, adaptability, mission, involvement, and consistency. And as I was reading that, I said, value culture gives everybody a mission. Value culture involves everybody. Value culture, when everybody's listening to the customer and being responsive, that makes the culture adaptable to exactly the right thing. And yeah. I love the overlap that, that your system gives. Yeah, you know, here's what I've seen kind of inside the organization, Mark. I've, I've been a part of two companies that had really strong, healthy cultures inside the organization and two organizations that had an unhealthy culture. And interestingly enough, that was, it sounds like four companies, but it was only two 
because each company started out with a great culture change of leadership. The culture went south and so did business performance. Same thing happened in the second company I worked for, for 10 years, seven years of those, a great culture, great CEO, and the culture really kind of emanated from him all the way down. And then a change of leadership, culture went south and so did performance. That's really interesting. I hadn't had that, but I did go from a company that had a, an amazing culture, uh, W.L. Gore and Associates, to yeah. uh, another company that I won't name that was uh, um, very command and control. Yeah. And I went from one to the other in six weeks. I didn't have that slow devolvement that you probably saw from the great culture to a crappy yeah. culture. Yes. It was, it was night and day. And so I now count that experience, that contrast as a gift, because when you saw that contrast so starkly in uh, instantaneously, that was kind of a gift. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yours was more uh, trial by fire. Mine was uh, it evolved or devolved. But I say the same thing. All of my experiences during the good times and during the bad times serve me well today because I understand what a great culture looks like and how it affects business performance and how we how we treat our customers. And I also understand from my own experience what a what a unhealthy culture looks like and how that plays out through through to the customer. Sure. You know, when I saw that just stark step change from one culture to the other, you got to watch the thousand cuts. And you got by a thousand cuts. Absolutely. Right? So you got you got to watch the effect of each one of those little incremental things that added up into the collapse of a culture. And uh, that's not something that I saw in that particular transition. Yeah. Uh, so that happened. Uh, that was my experience twice. And it was really both had the same trigger. And that was a change in leadership at the top, you know, with different focus, different priorities. The culture suffered and, and ultimately so did the performance. So what were some of the priorities that were hallmarks of the cultures where they put the fun in dysfunctional? <laughs> yeah, pretty similar for the two companies during the good times, healthy cultures. It started with a CEO, Mark, that was high integrity, again, both places, and understood this very clearly. And this is that the 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 employees that were customer facing were the most important people in the company and we lived that culture you know anybody that was in a support function like i was you know as a head of hr and and also training development i was very clear that we were doing what we were doing was to support that frontline customer facing uh, employee and the third hallmark was there were fun places to work there was a lot of pride so those are the three or four things that I saw that were consistent in both healthy cultures. A CEO that really understood that our job was to really, our primary job was to support the people that took care of our customers, led by example. We had, we, you know, we had a lot of pride, a lot of fun. People were valued. Frontline people that took care of the customer were valued the most. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, I don't know if you've met Michael Houlihan or Bonnie Harvey, the founders of Barefoot Wine. I've talked to Michael on the phone, yeah. And uh, Michael and, the, and Bonnie are adamant about the two-division company. There's sales and sales support. Yeah, yeah. What a great simplification that we all exist to make those customer-facing people more successful. 
Absolutely. And, and the success they had starting from, I think in their laundry room, as I remember the audio book to, you know, a really healthy, strong company that they sold for a lot of money. Yeah. So they had the two division company. Sometime back, I, 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 kind of talked about silos and yeah. I believe I believe that the gap between two silos and an organization is a crack for stuff to fall into. And when you have one silo, there's no cracks. When there's two silos, there's one crack. Three silos, you go from one to three, four silos, you go to six and then to 10 and then to 15 and then to 28 by the time there's seven silos. And what company has only seven? So the opportunity for trouble just goes up exponentially Absolutely. as you develop a formal organization the way I learned it in business school. Absolutely. You know, in business school, what we learned was, or what I learned was, you know, organizations were made up of functions. You know, there, there's the accounting function, which is a silo. Yeah. You know, there's the sales function. There's the marketing function, operations. HR, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. And, and so those are kind of vertical functions. And in my career, it was so common that they just didn't talk to each other. And so there, there were big disconnects. The biggest one I've seen in my career, Mark, was operations and sales. Sales guys would go out and sell the services that we provide. And the operations guys uh, often would be caught off guard. They had to staff that. <laughs> that work. And so when there is a disconnect between uh, sales and operations, brother, that that was a real problem. Yeah, I uh, sat on a plane once many years ago next to a guy who was a uh, installation or, you know, implementation guy. So he, yeah. he was flying back from from some engagement. And he said, well, my job basically every single time is to tell the customer that the salesperson lied to you and we can't do what he said. So let's figure out what we can do. And I just, you know, I threw up a little bit in my mouth. And I've met more and more people like that. And that really think that that's the way sales and implementation interact. But through the customer saying, you got lied to, sucker. Brother, I've seen that firsthand. Uh, in my previous life, we implemented an ERP system, a whole new business platform. And so the sale, I won't name the company, but the sales folks, I mean, they sold us the, the moon and the sun and said, this is about a $15 million two-year project at the most. And so, you know, we, we vetted three or four providers. And then what really happened, Mark, was it was a $120 million project. It took about five years. And, and so we did get lied to. Um, now, some of that was probably on us a little bit that we were a little bit naive came to implementing a big system like that because we hadn't done that in a, a very long time. We had a pretty antiquated system. But here's what that does to me is it damages your brand is what it does. You know, um, I had a vice president of sales for one of the big SaaS companies say to me that many times the way you were sold to, you have lost the renewal by the time installation is complete. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You've, you've, al you've already, your customer already never wants to do business with you again right after they've signed the deal. 
Yeah, I, I just read an article that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. It, it was in the CMO magazine. Basically, the position was customer trust is the most important thing for brand survival today, more than ever. It is more than ever, um, especially with the rise of uh, SaaS, software or cloud solutions, because you don't pay that $120 million up front. You pay a monthly fee. Typically, they want to just sell by the month. And if you sell only one or two months worth, you're not making any money as as this vendor, as the seller. Yeah. And if you have alienated your customer as you sold, maybe you'll get that first month or maybe you'll get the first six months, but you will never get to the profitable 37th month. Right. Uh, right. And, and when you say it's more important than ever, part of it is because of the competitive nature of the world, but part of it is because of the rise of that cloud SaaS model, because you don't make all of your money in the original contract. Right. Yeah, there, there's a lot at, at play there in terms of uh, customer trust. And some of that is uh, is kind of what you're saying is is just the, the new business models evolving. And some of it is, here's what I've seen, Mark, in terms of connecting culture and, and the customer. Really, the, the big difference between uh, in those two companies I was talking about, when the, when the next regime of leadership came in, it was all about the bottom line, completely about the bottom line. It wasn't so much about the customer, it was about margin. And so really kind of the the ironic thing is when I've seen businesses focus solely on the bottom line, the bottom line suffers. Because because that singular focus, other things suffer. Company culture suffers. The the customer experience suffers. No, I think you're exactly right. You know, I, I'm a big value-based pricing guy. So yep. I want to charge higher margins. Yep. But a customer only pays a higher price voluntarily or for a very short time. Pick one. They'll pay a higher price temporarily or a long time voluntarily. Those are, the, those are your only two options. And they'll pay a higher price voluntarily because they believe they get value. So if you sell the value and you build the value in, your margins take care of themselves as long as you know how to price to them. If you just try to charge the high price and expect the customer to understand the value, it will only be the temporary kind of. I have, I have been in a meeting where that was a very conversation, Mark, that one of, one of the executives that didn't come from the industry was very adamant that we've got to raise prices, we've got to improve our margins. And, and the guys running the business, the people running the business said, uh, well, the customer uh, has a vote in that. You get that, right? <laughs> um, that uh, they may agree to pay that higher price or they may go to our competitor. And, and they absolutely have the option to do that uh, in a very competitive business. So uh, w- without articulating and delivering on that value, uh, that higher price is going to be met with resistance by our customer because they they have a vote. Yeah. Uh, now that being said, sometimes what all you have to do, and I, this seems trivial, but it's way beyond the capabilities of so many sales forces, is to recount and and calculate the value, the outcomes that your customer has achieved from doing business with you. 
Yes. And then you say, look, Mr. Customer, here's what happened. I talked with Bill Higgs, the president or founder of Mustang Engineering, highly competitive engineering for oil field services. Yeah. And what they would do is they kept track of all the change orders that the customer came to them and say, we think we have to do this. And Mustang said, no, let's do it this way. And this will save you some money. And at the project wrap up meeting, they said, here's all the ideas we came up with. And here's all the money that we saved you with our ideas. And oh, by the way, do you notice that it's twice what you paid us for engineering? They showed their customer that not only had they paid their way and done a great job, but they had saved the customer twice as much as they had spent on engineering. And so suddenly in a highly competitive engineering services business, they were able to command a price premium. Yeah. When, when, when your business allows you to actually calculate value, that's awesome. It's, it's good news. If you're, if you're adding value, (laughs) if you're not adding value, it's not so good. You're absolutely right. It's easier to calculate value than most sales teams make it. Sales teams think it's harder than it really is. And they really can. Um, And if they can't, they shouldn't try to, to raise their prices when there's no value. Right. Sometimes the answer is we have no value. We have no differentiation. We have to stay at this price. Then it takes a sober assessment by everybody in the company saying, hey, we didn't earn a price premium. Yeah. Because sometimes the value price is we have to be cheaper than our competitors because they are better than us. Yeah. When when an industry starts to become commoditized, the only way to break out of that is through innovation and figuring out how to add value and and, and differentiate ourselves from the customer. Yeah. And that's not impossible. I sold money for GE Capital. And I sold money at a significant price premium. And money's pretty much a commodity. Uh, We've all driven past gas stations where two gas stations across the street from each other. My personal record is I saw gasoline for 40 cents a gallon different across the street from each other. And that's gasoline. So you can, if you put your mind to it, you can differentiate anything. I refuse to believe that you can't differentiate. That being said... Um, differentiation isn't just waving your hands and waving your magic wand. Yeah, actually, the gas stations are kind of a good example of that. Where I live uh, in Texas, uh, South uh, East Texas, Houston area, there's a chain of gas stations called Bucky's. It's like a regional chain, I guess I would say. Yeah. And they could, they are so different. They have a huge uh, store that has homemade like pecan rolls and barbecue and, and just really quality stuff. Um, and their bathrooms are always squeaky clean and they have I, I'm like 50 bays, uh, you know, for, for getting gas. And I, I am telling you, every one of those I've pulled into were busy. And so they have differentiated themselves in a commoditized business. And I'll bet you they aren't the cheapest gas, not anywhere close. You know what? I don't even pay attention. <laughs> that, 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 that's the thing, uh, because it, it, it's just such a great store to, to go into. And, and you always walk out. Well, I always walk out of there with something other than the gas I just bought, because they've just got some really quality stuff. Isn't that, you know, what a lesson. I don't even pay attention. That yeah. is the ultimate, that's the ultimate price premium. That's the ultimate price power. Yeah. Um, so 
I saw uh, some research, I get back to some culture and, and customer focus. Gartner says that 81% of companies believe they're going to have to compete based on their customer experience. And I kind of smartly said, well, that's 100% of people are going to be competing on, on customer experience. 19 just don't know it. But you said something when we were talking earlier, not on this podcast, but when we've talked before, and I was reminded of Richard Branson talking about uh our first priority is taking care of our people. Then we they take care of our customers. How does culture interact with that customer experience? As a customer, here's where I've seen it up close and personal. Our, our CEO of my previous company used to say that our uh, we have a company jet. It's called Southwest Airlines. <laughs> we have a lot of company jets. So I started watching Southwest Airlines I think when I was in an MBA class a long time ago uh, and started kind of watching them, studying them. And uh, there, there was a book came out and I don't remember the title of it, but it was really about their culture. And at that time, Herb Kelleher, who was really the first CEO of the company and, and a real character, uh, had this slogan, the customer is number two. And, and really what he meant by that uh, and what was very clear was we have got to take care of our employees because to the degree that we take care of our employees, that's the degree that they will create a good customer experience. And so they introduced a very new thing into the industry. And that was like comedy, you know, they would, they would do, uh, you know, kind of the safety announcement in very comedic ways. And, and we would all laugh, you know, there's no smoking on this plane. Uh, if you do smoke, we're going to invite you out onto the wing and watch Gone with the Wind. You know, just uh, and so he not only allowed that, he encouraged that. And so what Southwest did in a very commoditized industry where, you know, pricing is not very different was created a different experience. They just made it fun and they made it easy. Uh, and so, you know, they built a, 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 an Here's what they did, Mark. They built a healthy culture that made it fun to work. And, and, what, and what the employees there did was made it a great experience for the customer. And so those were so connected. You know, the experience of the employee was so connected to the experience of the customer. So if so many companies are trying to compete based on customer experience and it's intertwined with your company culture, do you have any thoughts on the culture of the future? What are companies going to have to look for or try to strive for in their cultures to succeed in the future? What I think will have to go away to compete is old school command and control. That's still alive and well, right? But I, I think what we'll see over time, I don't know how long, is those companies that still have that culture uh, will struggle to survive because today's workforce they don't want to. They don't want to work for a company that has that kind of culture. They just don't. And so I think trust. So I think a leadership style that is more engaging, uh, that is more focused on empowering people, developing people, nurturing people, is going to be critical to the workplace of. I think right now, Mark, because of this uh, radical change we experienced in 2020. But I, I think that will go forward into the future is that we'll have to have a, a, the kind of leadership 
that really does what Herb Kelleher did, value people, make it a great experience, and that will connect directly to the customer. And I think the second thing is kind of what you brought up is silos have to be torn down. The company of the future will have to collaborate really well uh, because what companies have to do now, what we saw this year is pivot right? The world changed. So we had to pivot to figure out how to work virtually, how to sell virtually, how to, uh, me doing leadership uh, training and development, I had to pivot to do it virtually and figured it out. And so I, I think those are the two things that will have to be two of the pillars for the future workplace. And that is engaging, positive, constructing, constructive, healthy leadership, and then a more collaborative workplace. Yeah, I think there's always going to be silos because there's always going to be the need for functional expertise. Yeah. However, uh, I think the difference is, and tell me if I'm wrong because you're the HR expert. Uh, I think today we think of silos coordinating from the top and having processes driven for coordination from the top and eliminating those cracks for stuff to fall through from the top. And what's going to have to happen is organizations are going to have to collaborate from the bottom. Absolutely. Problems. And, you know, and I think the good ones do, Mark, um, that they allow people to work across uh, the function to do their job well, for, for HR to work with accounts payable. Or, and, and often that does start at, at kind of the frontline level. And that's awesome when that happens. Yeah. So as leaders, yeah. uh, it, has to, it has to be both. We can... I say drive that. I think we have to quit saying that we're driving things. You know, uh, we're fostering things in, in the new workplace because uh, yeah, driving I, implies force. Right? Yeah, when, I, when I teach my account management, uh, we teach multiple points of touch rather than the bow tie where there's a single point of contact between two companies and, and it spreads out. Uh, it's an inverted bow tie. We zipper those companies together with peer-to-peer -peer relationships quarterback by that account manager, the account manager is no longer the single point of contact. It's, it's the companies are intertwined and zippered together. Yeah. And, and some people have to get over that, you know, that, uh, that they, as the quarterback, that, you know, they are the, the single point of contact and, and that won't work anymore. Yeah. Uh, uh, because, because, it, and the reason it won't work anymore is because, it's too slow to respond to issues that have to be responded to in real time. Yep, absolutely. Well, Mark, what did we forget to talk about? It's been a great conversation. Yeah, uh, I, I, I am very clear that we could talk two more hours, uh, Mark. So here's what I here's actually my tagline for my business that I work with uh, companies to develop two superpowers: leadership and culture. And I so believe that. Uh, and we've touched on uh, really on both of those topics that I've seen leadership and culture be superpowers and I've seen them be kryptonite at this also. Um, so when, when companies have strong leadership, healthy leadership, when I say strong, I don't mean domineering. I mean, really, really effective part of their strategy. Here's what smart companies do is they make culture part of their strategy. They, it's not, you know, uh, years ago, decades ago, Peter Drucker was uh, kind of famous for saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
Today, I think it's different. I think strategy, I think culture has to be part of strategy to compete today. And, and I think Southwest figured that out, but not everybody has. And uh, it's going to be the survivors that do. I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. How can people get a hold of you? So my LinkedIn profile, just uh, Mark Kinderleiter. Um, uh, there aren't a lot of them on there, but you'll see Dr. Mark Kinderleiter. And then my website is www.thirdwayinc.com. So Third Way Inc. is spelled out. Uh, and it's all one word, thirdwayinc.com. Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, and remember, everybody, value is only in your customer's mind, which means your success and your culture and the value of what you do is all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.